continuing our readings from Romans and this morning we're reading from Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So far this reading. Good morning. My name's Andrew and um, I'm, uh, it's my privilege to pastor here and um, it's also my privilege to share the word with you this morning and to, um, yeah, to, uh, to help us have a look at what we just read and um, just as we we're reading that last bit that, um, that Jim read, it just sounds terrible towards the end, doesn't it? You know, when we lists off all that stuff, I think, wow. But this is the word of God, isn't it? And... Um, we're doing a, a kind of like an eight eight week series on on Romans, um, and you know you might call us courageous. Romans is daunting and a formidable book to uh, to be able to work through, but it's well worth it. And um, I think you know, and I believe that we're going to be incredibly blessed by um, going through Romans and having a look at it together. And I encourage you. Um, to read through Romans at home. I know that we do that often. We say read through Luke, read through 
But, you know, I was just saying to someone else this week that I decided um, this week to every morning read the first eight chapters of Romans. And by halfway through the week, I think I started getting some of it. But I started hearing God through it. And it just takes, uh, it just takes that mechanical practice. And it's been really good. But we're going to do that. We're going to look through Romans. Um, someone summarized, I was reading this, someone summarized Romans like this. He said, it's God's amazing story of relentless grace. And I looked at that and I liked it. But like all summaries, it falls really short of the details and the content of the book. But I like it because what it really does, and as we, we'll see this as we go along, it reflects the heart of God behind all the words and all the detail that Paul and all the you know if you know Paul all those long sentences that Paul uh, that Paul it uh, that Paul uses it reflects the heart of God God's amazing story of relentless grace and whilst Romans takes work it's fantastic and I just want to encourage you with that you know we kicked it off last week last week was amazing well who was here last week and heard the message last week Glenn's message was amazing and I felt really kind of almost, I don't even know the word, I thought, how am I going to follow up? You know, if you read the next part of, you know, how am I going to follow up on that? But it was amazing to see how great the gospel is. And it's amazing that Paul starts there, isn't it? And, and the gospel's power to save us from sin that's happened to us or that's happened in us or happening in us as well. It's still happening. And Glenn spoke about that, you know, that whole recurring sin and, and the things that we still battle, that, that the message of grace and the message of the gospel was, was powerful to, um, to address not just things that have happened to us or things that we might have done, but even in the midst of the things that we're doing and and that's a, and and the power of the gospel for that that will save us even as christians it's the power of god applied to our lives that saves us what a powerful and encouraging message so how do you follow on from that you know when you read the next part how do i how do i go on especially as you reflect on our reading well paul in the you know when glenn shared last week and in the first chapter of romans or the first half of the first chapter paul has opened romans by expressing his heart he's not been to rome um, he would desperately love to go there and you can see that if you look at verse 10 if you got your bibles there you can cast back and you have a look he said always in my prayers asking that somehow by god's will i may now at last succeed in coming to you so in those words you hear this real this real keen desire to go and and see them and and you've got to ask when you see that you've got to ask the question why well because he loves them he's passionate about them he wants to spare share spiritually with them and he says that in there he he wants to do that so he and himself will be encouraged, but also to, to reap a harvest among them. And when he says them, he, when in Rome, I want to reap, reap a harvest in Rome among the, the Jews and the Gentiles, not just you guys that, that, uh, that know the God of the Old Testament, but also the Gentiles. And what is that spiritual gift or truth? And you notice in verse 11, he says... Um, let me have a look at that. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Did you notice it doesn't say gifts? There's no list of gifts. The gift. And then he relutes that gift, doesn't he? And that's what Glenn shared with us last week. He really wants to, um, to, to give him that gift. It's the gospel, verse 16 and 17. He's extra keen to do that. He's longing to do that. And why is he so keen? Why is it so important? Why was it so important for us to hear that message last week? Why is it so important for these guys to hear that? 
What does Paul know? Or what does he see that's motiv- motivating him? And these are the questions that, that I asked myself as I read the next section because I came down with a huge thud reading the next section. I don't know if you did. But I went back to find out, well, why is Paul so keen? And sometimes when I, I don't know, and, and I'm gonna, I've got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to share one of the tips that I do. When I, when I don't get something, I read it a few times. And so I was reading um, chapter 1 right through to 2.11 because I knew I was supposed to go through to 2.11 and, and Glenn was going to do one. And I read it and I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize this in bullet points for myself just to get a flow. Have you ever done that? No? Yes, you have. This is what I do. And so I, I actually wrote my bullet points down. I'm going to share them with you. This is how I, I tell the story to myself to make it make sense. So if you take nothing else home, you can take this home today. So from chapter 1 through to, two, from chapter one through to 2.11, this is how I summarize it after reading it. I really want to come and see you because I've never been to Rome. Because I hear that you're faithful and I want to share a spiritual gift with you. I want us both to be encouraged. You need to know that I've tried really hard to come. I want to teach and preach there to both you, the Jews, and the Gentiles, because I want more followers. Why? Because the gospel is good news. It's great. I'm totally up for it. I'm not ashamed for it. Even if the Romans and Greeks think I'm stupid and it's crazy, I am totally up for it because it's the power of God for salvation. Why is this so important? Because the wrath of God is revealed, and it will be revealed, and it's great. God made himself known. Everyone can know him and see him. It's clear in creation. They have no excuse. Yet they, the world, they don't acknowledge him. Thinking that they're smarter, they actually became fools and shoot themselves in the foot. So God let them go. Let them do that. Let them follow their sin. And because they still didn't acknowledge him and acknowledge that they were wrong, he let them and he gave them over to sin. Chapter 2. But wait. Don't think you Jews are so innocent just because you know God and you keep rules. You do the same things and you let others do it too. In fact, you teach others to do right and then you do what you told them not to do. Sounds like Paul later on, doesn't it? This is going to cause trouble and stress for both you, the Jews, and the Greeks, the Gentiles, because God is not selective. So this is where we've landed. This is where we are. Now you can see why I long to come to you. I've got to fix this. The gospel can fix this. Are you beginning to see why the gospel is such good news? This is a God-sized problem that needs a God-sized solution. That's how I summarized that section. If you ever want to figure out how to summarize something, do it like that. Understand what Paul's trying to say. So back to our text. At the start, there's a secret. And right at the start of our text in verse 18, the secret is the word for. In verse 18, it's so important that we talk about the power of the gospel for this is where we've landed because this is where we're at. This is where society is. This is where Rome is at. It's so important that I tell you the power of the gospel and I'm not ashamed because this is where we've landed. And we can never understand or appreciate the gospel's power or salvation unless we see why we need it so much. Paul says for in order to show us that everything that he's going to say about sin is meant to support the good news of verse 17, that good news of salvation. We will never truly appreciate the magnitude of salvation and freedom if we don't understand our guilt. Can you imagine you've done something really wrong? You've gone to court for it. You know, imagine what you will. You've gone to court. You've pled guilty 
And in our justice system, you plead guilty and they say, yes, you're guilty. And then you've got to come back for what they call a committal hearing, don't you? You've got to come back to find out what the punishment's going to be. Can you imagine you've pled guilty, you've done something really bad, you feel really bad, you've said you're guilty, you come back to the court for committal hearing and the judge says, the judge says to you, I'm going to drop the charges against you because you were guilty, for you were guilty. I can't drop charges against you if you're not guilty. I'm going to drop the charges against you because you were guilty. That's the message. The power of the gospel to say, because you were guilty, because you needed it. And that's what Paul's doing here. In the next few chapters of Romans, Paul's goal is not so much to proclaim the good news, but to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the good news of salvation from God's wrath. I've got a couple of quotes that I thought you might want to have a look at. Piper said this. I did a lot of reading around what, you know, what some of these people think about Romans. Piper said this. Knowing sin and wrath will help you cherish the gospel. And then a guy called Morris, I read a paper that a guy called Morris wrote, and he said, unless there is something to be saved from, there is no point in talking about salvation. Let me say that again. Glenn's message was great last week, wasn't it? This is, yes, this is, he's sitting here, yes, you know. But unless there is something that we need to be saved from, there is no point in talking about it. Think about that. G. Campbell Morgan wrote another paper and he was talking about this section of Romans and he said it's the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested and at the same time the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. And that's the contrast, that's the, the double nature of Romans, isn't it? If we're going to understand why we need God's power in the gospel, why we need his righteousness imputed to our account, then we need to understand his wrath against our sin. If we're not such bad people, if we have enough good deeds to earn points towards heaven, then we don't need God's righteousness. And God didn't need to bear, and Christ didn't need to bear God's wrath on behalf. But if, and it's not an if in my case, but if we are ungodly and unrighteous in God's sight, if we have suppressed the truth like Paul talks about, in unrighteousness, and if as a result we are under wrath, then we desperately need God's saving power through the gospel. You're beginning to understand why it's important for us to look at this, why Paul spends, really early on in Romans, why he spends time talking about this. And if you take nothing else home, take that home. But let's talk for a moment about God's wrath. Now, wrath is an old word, isn't it? You could use anger, mad but wrath kind of is is angrier than anger isn't it like it's dirtier it's nastier than anger it's it's greater than anger it's kind of like you know mum and dad get angry but have you ever said boy dad's got a lot of wrath if you have you need to talk to us afterwards we can pray for you afterwards so let's take a moment to talk about God's wrath. We don't like that word. Generally, if you use that word in society and even in a lot of churches, we don't like that word. It's not a nice subject. We don't like to talk about God like that because God is loving, God is nice, God is kind. He, he meets us at our point of need. And, and all that's true, by the way. But when we talk about a God of wrath, it's not that picture we like to have of God. It's not the thing that we use in our first kids' lesson about, let me teach you about God. You know, turbos, let's do a term on God's wrath. 
you know, mums and dads are dealing with traumatised kids at the dinner table for the next week. It's not how we like to think about God. But here's the thing. We need to get rid of the idea that of when we think of wrath, that we need to get rid of this picture that it's someone with a bad temper or someone um, throwing a tantrum or having an irrational outburst of, or an emotional reaction to something. That's a picture I get when I think of someone with wrath. You know, this wrath builds up and they just blow up, you know. And you can imagine a fire coming out of them. That's not the picture we need to have. We need to lose that human picture of what it looks like, you know, someone throwing a tantrum or so. And it's also not a case of, and I read some article, you know, some of the, in the early history of some of the more traditional churches, it's not also a case of, well, you know, a God is a God of wrath because that's his purpose. That's his job, to get angry at sin. You know, that's his place. That's what he does and that's what he's for, you know, so that we know that we've messed up. That's not the picture we have of a God of wrath. There's two things I want to say here, and I've got a slide to help us understand them. The first one, God is just and right in his wrath. He's right to be offended. He's right to judge. He's right to be upset. He did and he does everything. He created the world. He sustains us. He nurtures us. And he nurtures creation. He sustains creation. He designed the best way for us to live. And yet, we decide to ignore him. We decide to not even acknowledge him in his way so often. We often don't see his way as best. We often don't see the way that he nurtures us. And we, we push back against that. We don't honour him. We didn't honour him. And what's more, we set our own course and we decide or decided that we know and we knew better. And so we let sin overtake us. We let sin overtake our lives. We actually relish sin. So we've kind of replaced, by refusing to acknowledge God, we've replaced him. So the first point is God is right in his wrath. I think we need to understand that. But the second thing is God, and you've got to say this fast. If you can say this fast, God does wrath right, we do wrath wrong. Right? God does wrath right, doesn't he? Not like we do it. Not like we'd blow up at our kids or blow up at someone we get angry or, or road rage nowadays. Now God doesn't do road rage. He doesn't do wrath. He does wrath right. God's wrath is loving. Because it's driven by love. My wrath is driven by frustration, by anger, by being hurt, by being annoyed, by someone taking something away from me. God's wrath, on the other hand, is driven by incredible love. His anger and wrath is at seeing sin destroy us. Seeing sin hurt us. Seeing sin separate us from Him. Our God of wrath is a God of love. So those are two really important things. God is just and right in his wrath, but he does wrath right and it comes from the right place. There's an old book and some of you might have read it. J.I. Packer is the author and he wrote a book, Knowing God, many years ago. Bit of a slog to read, but a good read. I've got a quote here for you. And it says, If we would know God, it's vital that we face the truth concerning his wrath however unfashionable it might be, and however strong our initial prejudices are against it. Otherwise, we will not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath, 
nor the achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God. It's like we can't see what Glenn was talking about last week unless we see this. Or it's terribly weak. The, the, the redeeming love of God will seem terribly weak to us if we don't see that we need it. So wrath might be confronting, but it's good. It might even work as a lens for us to see a greater and more loving God than we've ever seen before. God's goodness is actually displayed in his wrath. And it's interesting that when you have a look, and I, I did a bit of a statistic checking, and that um, clearly it's important for us, for God, to God, that we understand his wrath and we understand his position on that. Because there are something like four times more references in the Bible to wrath, fury, or anger than there are for love and tenderness. Did you ever know that? Wow, that was a bit of a surprise to me. God hates what sin does to us. And that's what makes him angry. So back to our text. So what was the genesis of this? What was the beginning of the slide that, that Paul is addressing, that God is so angry about? Where did the slide of sin start? What was the cause? And I think the cause is basically, um, on the next slide, you'll see basically the genesis of sin is failing to recognize and acknowledge or honor God. I think that's where it all began. And that's where it all begins in our life, isn't it? The genesis of sin, the genesis of the slide, to all of the rest of the stuff he says and all this list of horrible stuff is this failing to recognize and honor God. And verse 19 and 20 says that really succinctly. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, so they can see it because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This sense of, I don't know if you've ever looked into this general revelation and special revelation, but a theory behind or the, the, the message being there that God has revealed himself in nature, that everyone can see that he's there. When we fail to acknowledge God as our creator, when we fail to acknowledge God as our designer or our life giver, as our beginning and purpose, when we don't look to God, we begin to look to ourselves. When we fail to recognize that God is the author and the beginning, then we begin to look at ourselves, and instead of living for His glory, we live for ours. And then we believe that there is no higher power than us. Let me say that again because it's really important to understand. When we don't acknowledge God, when we don't look to God anymore, we begin to look to ourselves. God ceases to become the one that leads us and guides us. So he ceases to become the one that has power over our lives. And so we're left with ourselves and we begin to believe there is no higher power than ourselves. Sin begins to take hold and we've lost what I, and I use this word and, and word on a computer kept telling me this is not a word because it was a red line under it all the time. Do you have that sometimes? I have that a lot. I have to go back and fix it all, but... But sin takes hold and we have lost our centering. This is, what I, this is how I feel it. That compass that guides us. We've lost. And, and I started thinking about orienteering. Has anyone ever heard about orienteering? You know what orienteering is? It's kind of like um, 
Anyway, you know what orienteering is. And it's kind of, this is how I understood it. We're like orienteers who go and start without a compass to show us what true north is, and we reject a map. And we choose our own starting point, and since there's no true north, we make the true north us, wherever I want to begin. And since we start where we want because we don't have a map, we take our own paths. And what happens? You end up lost. If you don't have a compass and you don't have a map as an orienteer, you are hopelessly lost. You're not going to get there. And it's kind of like rejecting God is like saying, I don't need a map. I don't need a compass. I don't need to know what true north is. I don't need to know what the plan is, where I'm going. I will work it out by myself. And we get hopelessly lost. And unwillingness to recognize God leaves us open to the control and influence of other things as well. So then how does sin play out? And he goes on, how does it play out? And it's in, in two ways, he uses two words. He says in verse 18, he says, ungodliness and unrighteousness. I think I've got that on a slide as well, haven't I? Ungodliness is this kind of this vertical the two ways that sin play out, the two ways that, that we fall into sin and that, that draws the wrath of God down is ungodliness. We reject God. It's that vertical relationship. We rebel against God. Verse 23 um, says that, And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so what we do is we, we reject God, we rebel against Him, and then we put other things, our stuff, whatever that is in your life. Um, and in the Bible, we have lots of stories of how they made idols and different things to worship. Maybe you don't have an idol in your back garden. But maybe you have a bank account that you look at often and you wonder how it's going. Maybe you have a relationship that means a whole lot to you. You don't have an idol in your back garden, but you have a relationship that takes a whole lot of your time. Or a whatever it is that gets in the way. Ungodliness is when we, that vertical relationship is switched and we no longer worship him, we worship other things and other things become our God. And a second way that Paul says that, that sin is revealed is through unrighteousness. An unwillingness to recognize God, ungodliness is always the root sin. So that first one is always the root sin, but unrighteousness flows from it. And that leads to us sinning against each other living unrighteous lives with and towards each other. What's more, the unrighteousness towards each other hides and suppresses the truth. Did you notice that in a text that he says, I'm not only angry that you reject the truth, but I'm angry, my wrath is because you hide the truth, you suppress it. Others can't even see it, even if they wanted to, because you decided in your wisdom that they shouldn't see the truth. So it's not only the fact that we... Don't, we, we, our sin actually hides the truth of God from others, suppresses God. We can suppress God. When we, and he says they, when they or we fail to acknowledge God, we reject him, that leads to separation from God. Left to our own devices, without that compass that I talked about before, or without God as our guide, we begin to treat each other and the world with our unrighteous and selfish behavior. So because we don't have that moral compass of that place anymore, the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat the world, is through unrighteousness. 
And when we do that, when we're in the world, when we are being unrighteous, when we're treating each other bad in the world, we're not revealing, we're actually suppressing God. We're not showing God. You know the old message that, you know, you might be the Jesus, the only Jesus that anyone ever sees? If you're busy in sin, if you're busy in unrighteousness and treating people bad, you're actually not just not showing Jesus, you're hiding Him. We fail to show God. And because of that, like Paul says, we see God's wrath revealed. He says God's wrath is being revealed and will be revealed. And because of that behavior, we see that in our world. We see God's wrath manifest in our lives through frustration, futility, misery, struggle, death that's a part of our life, sickness, Things that we all deal with, but we also see it in our world, don't we? The degradation of society, of, of values, violence, nations turning their backs on God and, and uh, fighting each other. It isn't just back there in Rome. When we, when we start with ungodliness, we move to unrighteousness. We begin to treat each other wrong. We suppress God and we reap the harvest in our own lives. In the section that we read in the, the last part of chapter 1, Paul talks about they a lot, doesn't he? They. He uses the word they. And it's only in chapter 2 that he turns to you. But Paul says they, and, and maybe he means the, the world or the Greeks or those ungodly ones. And the Jews might have been feeling okay for a bit. And we didn't read 2, but I encourage you to read the, the first 11 verses of 2 if you get a chance. Because the Jews might have been feeling all right there, but then he changes the language to you. He says, yeah, they are bad, but you can't point the finger. They thought that their identity as Jews shielded them from wrath and judgment. Like a guarantee that no matter what they did, even if they demanded that non-Jews stop doing the very things that they were doing, and ironically they saw no conflict. It was okay for them to do that stuff because they were sons of Abraham. But if you're not a son of Abraham, if you're not one of the originally circumcised, then you can't do that stuff. And we can actually judge you on that. But we can keep doing it. And you'd never, you'd, that's seriously how it was back there. They thought that their identity as Jews would shield them from anything, any judgment. That they could go on sinning. They could go on doing whatever they wanted. The Gentiles couldn't. They had to be wrapped on the knuckles. But they could keep doing. But Paul says, you do the same things. You teach the right things. You pass judgment on those bad people, but you do it yourselves too. And you are going to reap the harvest of that if you read in chapter 2. So it's healthy for us as a church and as Christians to understand that this is not just a message for out there for the big bad world. We might raise our eyebrows sometimes. We might, you know at some of the big sins we hear about. You know, and Glenn talked about this last week where we have this, you know, these are sins that are kind of, okay, they're not good, but these are sins like, <gasps> yeah, we, might, we might do that. We, we might catch ourselves doing that. You know, there's, but there's greater sin and lesser sin and actually that's not true and, and I don't sin like that and, and I've never done that. Or, and even in the church when, when we compare... But we need to hear this word and understand it too, that we too are under God's wrath. 
and that we struggle with and we all give over to sin just as much. And so that should lead to the church and to us being a place of compassion and grace. So I was talking to someone this week and I was saying, you know, the irony is that God wanted this to be the place where the most miserable sinner that had done the most <gasps> thing could come to for mercy and be accepted. And the irony is in our world, this is probably the last place that they would come because they know that they'll get judged. Isn't that a shame? Even in our church, there are people sitting in our group, there are people that if we, we listen to each other, we wouldn't tell each other things because we would be so fearful. And yet this should be the place where you could come and just say it and know, these people are going to help me. I can get past this. They're not going to judge me. I'm not broken in every area of my life because I haven't got this right. We want to be the place that reveals Christ to them. So we need to hear and understand that we're under God's wrath, that we struggle with and give over to sin just as much, every single one of us. We're broken. Our world is broken because of sin. And Paul will go on to speak about this more in chapter 3 where he says that, you know, you remember that no one is righteous, not, all, not even one, and we all have turned aside and no one does good. And Paul will go on to explain it and help us to understand that. So God is right and just to be angry, to pour out his wrath even on us. We don't really like that. We don't like messages like this sometimes. We don't like the fact that we're not that loving place that people can run to knowing that they're going to be accepted. We don't like hearing that we're not that. We don't like hearing that God's wrath is, 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 is on us. It's not a nice thought. And this section of Romans is tough. So is there any hope? Is there any hope? You know, this is sounding really, I'm, I'm preaching a message, I'm thinking, this is tough. But yes, there is. We heard it last week and Paul says it himself. The gospel is the power to save. The wrath that was from God for us was poured out on his own son, Jesus. We can now have a righteousness that's not our own. And that's really important to understand because the righteousness isn't our own. I am still a broken, sinful person. I am still, my actions are still deserving of the wrath of God. But I can now have a righteousness that's not my own. It's given to me. It wasn't won by me. It was won by Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from me, but God's righteousness. I can have God's righteousness even though I am still the person I am. How? Well, Paul says that righteousness is being and will be revealed. If you look back where Glenn was preaching of in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Where was God's wrath in the gospel? Where was God's wrath ultimately revealed? Where was God's wrath ultimately displayed? The greatest example of God pouring out his wrath was when he put his own son Jesus on the cross to bear our sins. That's where his wrath was revealed. That's where it actually came out. And that is why Paul is so passionate to help us understand it. Not that we're not sinners, because we are. Not that our sin is trivial, because it isn't. Not that God will overlook it because he's a good God and he loves us. No. He must respond to our rebellion and rejection. He must pour out his wrath, and he did, on his son Jesus and because of that, we now 
can look at the wrath of God in light of gospel power. We see it in light of his marvelous grace. We can look at the wrath and we can look through it, the lens of grace. How great and powerful is his mercy that rescues us from the destruction of our refusal to acknowledge him. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. Will you acknowledge him? Will I acknowledge him? Will you acknowledge your sin and accept his son and sacrifice? Will I acknowledge my sin and yet accept that righteousness that is not, that is not my own? Because that's the power of salvation. That's the power of salvation that, that God's wrath is just and yet his grace is even greater. Paul wanted them to see that. He wanted to see that this is where we are. This is why you need to know how wonderful, how powerful the message of salvation is. Because this is where we're at. And this is not just where the big bad world out there is at. This is where you're at in your heart. But now the righteousness of God is being revealed. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul wanted them to see that it has been and can be turned around. He wanted them to embrace the gospel, and I believe that God wants to see that too. There's one last quote I want to share with you just towards the end here. I think I have it on. I think I have one more slide. Do I have one more slide, Roy? I do, this quote. Why is the gospel so powerful? And I, there was no, I can't tell you who did this. I, I won't claim it for myself because there was no name. But why is the gospel so powerful? Here is the answer in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that is much greater and more powerful than the unrighteousness of man. The gospel is so powerful that it can take unrighteous sinners and transform them into righteous saints. You remember, if we don't need to see the wrath of God, we will never understand the power of our salvation or the glorious gift that we've received in salvation. He is revealing the gift of righteousness for all who believe in Christ. And with that righteousness, there is no wrath or condemnation for us anymore. As we go further into Romans, we'll all know that we get further into verse 8 when we, when we hear that message. So this section of, this is, this, is my last, this is my last sentence. This is what I wrote after reading this section a few times of Romans. It's tough. But it's the truth and it's tremendous. There you go, Joel. Three T's. Let me pray for you.